Hi there. Thanks for joining. As usual, it's Josh, Buddhist pastor, Dharma teacher at Dharma Punks New York since 2005. Welcome. We will be having our next in-person half-day workshop at Center Yoga on May 21st. And then in June, we'll be doing a Philly day long to support my work. Everything I do is entirely by donation. And actually, uh, those of you that donate are what actually keep the podcast and all this going. So uh, if you would like to support, knowing that any amount is also is welcome, Venmo is Dharma Punks with an XNYC. PayPal buttons are on the website, dharmapunksnyc.com, and also on the podcast site. And there's a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash dharmapunksnyc. So pretty. And tonight, we are talking about practicing contentment and going over the fundamental insights of positive psychology movement. I'm going to talk a little bit about and then we're going to dive into the practices that are associated with cultivating contentment, essentially spreading happiness and feelings of well-being, boosting them, as it were. So up until the 1950s, psychology was primarily broken down into certainly the tradition of Freudian psychoanalysis which focused on how emotional memories, uh, along with sexual and aggressive drives when repressed, led to anxiety disorders, compulsions, and a whole host of other symptoms. And so the goal of psychoanalysis was to sit in a room uh, with a on a couch with a analyst behind you, out of sight, and you'd free associate. And over time, the with subtle guidance and just being with your freely associative mind, the repressed drives and content would return. And then in tandem with the analyst, one would find healthy ways to discharge these drives. And in contrast with Freudian psychoanalysis, which was all about internal states, all about repressed emotional content. There was also the tradition of behaviorism, which viewed human actions without any interest in internal thoughts, feelings. The human mind was essentially seen as a kind of conditioned response, stimulus response machine. There was no need to know how people felt or thought. It was just understood that certain stimuli would result in certain behavior. People were seen as pretty much uh, as predictable as animals. And these two twin per and from behaviorism, some of the beginning foundations of uh other behavioral traditions were founded. Both, though, the behavioral psychologists and the Freudian analysts were kind of aloof 
experts that focused on symptoms or our problems pretty much exclusively. It wasn't that important to have an empathetic bond with a therapist. In fact, it was seen as wholly inconsequential. In both behaviorism and Freudianism, the analyst or psychologist was seen as a kind of scientific expert. And the focus of the sessions were focusing on ridding oneself of symptoms uh, and pretty much little else. Of course, this was pretty discouraging to many, many, many psychologists focusing on what makes us actually feel happy in life rather than simply focusing on our symptoms and our, our, our pathologies. So they wished to focus on how we could enhance and expand states of well-being in life rather than fixing symptoms. And of course, this fixation on symptoms made clients eventually just come in to therapy with this whole laundry list of problems. And there was this sense that the whole therapeutic connection would be meaningless if one didn't have any problems or challenges. So in this dyadic uh, juxtaposition, a new tradition of positive psychology, people like Abraham Maslow, who developed the famous hierarchy of needs, showing that self-realization was the goal of therapy, achieving feelings of growth and mastery, creativity, reaching our fullest potential became the focus of Maslow's therapy. It was not this sort of drudging through a list of pathologies, but more celebrating and emphasizing the skills and the connectedness and all of the attributes that made us feel good about ourselves. There was Martin Seligman, who started out by researching learned helplessness, but then became more interested in what allows human beings to be optimistic. How do we learn optimism? How do we learn to feel good about possibilities in life? There was Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, who became interested in flow states, those engaged, creative, immersive activities that are synonymous with well-being and being completely so absorbed in an activity, a creative activity, pottery, gardening, cooking, playing an instrument that made us feel freed from those stressful, catastrophizing thoughts. And there was Ed Diner, who became fascinated with what creates subjective well-being. And a more contemporary founder was Barbara Fredrickson, who came up with the essential broaden and build theory, which showed that positive emotions serve core evolutionary function. Up until that point, it was thought that only negative emotions, fear, anger, shock, disgust, um, sadness, had evolutionary purpose, and somehow happiness just developed by accident. But Fredrickson and others showed that, in fact, um, positive emotional states like happiness and joy 
serve a core function of restoring our nervous system back to homeostasis so that we could build up our resilience and our strength and our ability to connect with others so that we could face new challenges. So she was the first to focus and show a real uh, Darwinian evolutionary purpose for positive emotional states. And then there's... uh, other contemporary figures like Sandra Lubomirsky, I can never pronounce her name, Sandra Lubomirsky, something like that. She wrote The How of Happiness and Jonathan Haidt, The Happiness Hypothesis. And these are psychologists that did reams of clinical research and combined the research of others into these pragmatic books that develop tools for um finding self-realization and states of self uh, acceptance and growth and so forth. And so having worked my way through books by all of the above, pretty much, I can summarize what I over the years have learned. uh, And hopefully it will simply encourage you to do your own research and practice some of these tools as you see fit. Now, many of the traits that the above noted that were characteristics of a positive life are, of course, the most uh, foundational social connections, feeling uh, uh, important to other people and know that um, there are people there to help us process emotional events in life. And along with that, Though there are key attributes found again and again in all the clinical research, altruism, creativity, gratitude, and very often any form of spiritual practice. Some of the basic insights that I'll read, and I'll tell you some of the people that did the studies so you can look them up. Uh, The more we practice gratitude, the happier we'll be was the focus of Martin Seligman's research. So if you look up Seligman and gratitude, you'll find all the clinical studies and towards that. Um, giving hugs and other forms of physical affection lifts our overall well-being due to oxytocin. And that was the work of Baraza, B-A-R-R-A-Z-A, in a study about 15 years ago. People who perform acts of kindness towards others not only experience a lift in well-being, but they feel better connected with others. And that was, again, Sandra Leobramorski. Spending money on experiences rather than objects makes us happier. Uh, That was, uh, I think, Howell. And Hill or something like that, uh, about again, about in 2010 or something like that. People who overestimate, people always overestimate the positive impact uh, that money will bring. And that was the research of Ed Diner. If we focus less on wealth than on connecting with others and acts of altruism, we wind up happier. Um, Alice Eisen at Cornell has shown that focusing on everyday simple rewards, for instance, noting 
how lunch today tasted really good or no focusing on how we got a message from a friend or noting that the sun came out and it felt warm these little savoring the good throughout the day makes us feel significantly happier more generous friendlier and makes us even feel physically healthier and of course uh, i can't remember who did this study but happiness is contagious if you gravitate towards friends who are optimistic that will spread to you because we are a mimicking species and as bandura showed so we imitate the emotional states of others so gravitate towards those who uh focus on uh exploring uh changing growth rather than those who focus on feeling stuck or lack of agency it's of course arguable and i think demonstrable that the first positive psychologist was actually the buddha for he not only emphasized the goal of all practice being the end of suffering, i.e. pathology, but also, uh, and that suffering, by the way, was ended by renouncing our addictive craving and consuming of material goods and short-term pleasures, and instead acting with altruism and gratitude and kindness towards others. But he also was very much about how we can cultivate states of what was called jhana which are transcendently blissful states that are peaceful and happy and so uh, in the meditation portion i'm going to lead you on a uh a, a, one of the buddha's uh, described meditations known as the kula sunyata so the the task of positive psychology is pretty daunting to say the least because the brain has and i'm sure you know this negativity bias which is an ingrained tendency to focus and dwell on the negative rather than the positive uh, experiences of life given all things uh equally we feel the sting of setbacks far more than the lift of, of positive events of we just focus attention and ruminate on the negative and we tend to give very little attention to the positive this is of course due to evolution it was essential that our ancestors remember which bush contained the snake not remember all the bushes that had berries and fruits in it um the idea was it's important to remember the threats not the opportunities looking on the bright side is not in our nature it actually has to be learned as was shown by Martin Seligman um we are naturally prone to learned helplessness rather than learned optimism this is all the way rooted down to the core structures of the emotional brain the amygdala shows significant activation when we remember unpleasant experiences but far less activation when we recall the present and it only takes the ventral ventral temporal lobe yes the ventral temporal lobe about a half a second to store lastingly a negative experience in memory 
but it takes 12 seconds of sustained focused attention to bed in a long-term positive memory. So that's called savoring. We really have to sit and savor and hold in mind the positive experiences for a day because the negative ones will be encoded lastingly like that. You won't have to put any effort in. But to remember the, the positive, we have to put effort in. Likewise, uh, multiple studies have shown if given an array of good, neutral, or bad adjectives about someone you don't know, you'll give uh, greater weight to the bad. (laughs) You'll remember the bad things that people say about a stranger rather than the good, unless you really focus on balancing the good with the bad. This is why all news channels, newspapers, TV news, internet news uh, is driven by the If It Bleeds, It Leads Foundation, where the bad news is always put up front because it generates clicks. So when we talk about practicing contentment, we're talking about literally in many ways learning and practicing, refocusing our attention away from what it's innately drawn to, towards themes and topics and very simple behaviors that are not deeply natural to us. So these are practices. I'm not going to focus on, in the rest of the talk, how we, we, you know, the changing our external circumstances, which for many of us might be very important, like, for instance, building a community, altruistic endeavors, generosity, and work helping others. These are all the external practices. But today, I'm going to be focusing on tools that we can do alone and or mostly alone. Uh, that involve mind state shifts, simple practices that help refocus our attention in ways that are beneficial for our sense of well-being, happiness, and safety. I should note before I list these that forcing ourselves to simply think positively is often more harmful than good. Asking us to be unrealistically optimistic is as detrimental as catastrophizing, sitting around thinking of everything bad that can go wrong. So these are, as you'll see, not literally tools that just involve just only thinking positively. They're more tools that are realistically, uh, clinically proven, that are... uh, when practiced day in and day out for an extended period of time, can literally change our our sense of happiness in our life. So the first is uh, um, self-acceptance. Our society puts a huge pressure on us to be successful, to not need help, to establish... Uh, an identity through comparing ourselves with others to try to achieve uh, certain milestones that might be realistic for some, but wholly unrealistic for others. 
you know, it's very easy to believe, you know, unless uh, one is uh, married or owns a house or has uh, a success, you know, an esteemable job or what like that, uh, that somehow one is failing. And so self-acceptance is an active practice on how we think about and frame and pay attention to our lives. And it's very closely related to our one's mental health, as uh, numerous studies have shown. So this involves, for example, simply making a list of our strengths, recalling the times in the past where we were facing challenges and through resilience, through skills, through uh, resources, through asking for help, uh, uh, we not only survived, but we actually wound up often in better situations. Celebrating growth in terms of any time we pick up or learn something new, really celebrating those those milestones. When it comes to interpersonal life, there's a lot of research that shows that the use of strategic self-presentation that emphasizes, when we talk to people about our life, emphasizes our feelings of agency. So never, never um, focusing on feelings of being trapped, incapable, stuck, but always focusing on what uh, roads we have available to us, what tools we have available to us. Um, This has been associated with happiness for both high and low self-esteem practitioners. Uh, So it's basically no matter what state or even emotional uh, landscape we find ourselves in, it's really emphasizing uh, what our plans are, what how we uh, what we're going to do next, where we find um, hope and optimism and and growth possibilities in our life. In Buddhism, a key practice is what's called sila nusati, which is holding in mind memories of our times and actions of virtue altruistic act, times we extended ourselves towards others. So um, uh, visualization practices where we literally remember times that we, despite stress, despite challenges, we uh, developed and manifested some kind of, uh, we uh, were creative, we uh, we tried and developed a new approach to dealing with that challenge. So Sila Nusati, I've given lots of uh, guided meditations on, and you can just look in any of the past talks on self-esteem and you'll find that. Another key Practice and developing a feeling of happiness and contentedness is practicing loving kindness meditations. Barbara Fredrickson has shown that um, this meditation 
uh, produces states of homeostasis in the nervous system, which improves vagal tone, which is a physiological marker of emotional and physical health. If you'd like to read about it, uh, check out her book, Love 2.0. It's filled with wonderful studies, wonderful writing, and it documents how meta meditation, just sending out thoughts of kindness and appreciation to other beings, uh, helps participants feel more connected and more grateful for our own lives, especially when we practice meta for ourselves. And I like to, when I do meta meditations, rest a hand on my heart center, which activates the vagal tone and upregulates oxytocin. So if you do that, you know, put a hand on your forehead, the back of your neck, or on your heart center. It's shown that just relaxed human touch upregulates oxytocin. And that's definitely a hormone you want to produce more of. So um, I'm going to let you run to Barbara Fredrickson's Love 2.0 if you'd like to look for all the confirming evidence of why that works. I'm not going to spend any more time on it. I've given lots of talks on, and guided meta meditations. So, or you can just go on, uh, just type meta meditation, M-E-T-T-A, and you'll find 10,000 will pop up on your Google feed. Um, another tool for cultivating contentedness is focusing on our ongoing emotional awareness of what we're experiencing. Now, it's kind of ironic that when we think of cultivating happiness, it means we want it, it we can conclude that means ignoring negative emotions, but actually it's the opposite. We practice neither reacting and resisting negative emotions, nor, nor fixating on them, but simply noting all of our emotional states as they arise and pass. Contentedness is more than feeling pleasure and avoiding pain. It concerns, above all, learning how to be in touch with all of our internal states during the meaningful experiences of our lives. So emotions can be positive in some experiences, can be neutral in some others, and can be negative in others. But the more we develop what's called distress tolerance, the ability to be with any emotion, to simply know what it is, to learn how to observe it without trying to run from it, uh, repress it, uh, or fixate on it, there's... Um, so much good research that shows its benefits. In fact, there was a recent survey of 2,400 university students in eight, that's where it's eight, I'm holding up eight fingers, eight countries showing a direct correlation between awareness and tolerance of one's emotional states, even when they're unpleasant, and contentment. The more emotions we're capable of noting and experiencing without taking it personally, uh, the greater life satisfaction we have. We stop believing that our negative emotions are defining of us, and we begin to see that they're just states that flow or move through us. 
And to do this, the practice is Buddhist mindfulness meditation, and that's described in the four foundations of uh, mindfulness. It's a famous sutta. Essentially, the Buddha teaches it as first sit, be comfortable, be aware of what your body is like. What, you know, what are the, what posture you in? How does your, what is your body experiencing? Is there any pain present? Is there pleasure present? And then become aware of the feelings of comfort or discomfort that's in any experience. How do I know how I feel about this experience? And then once one has a sense of one's state of comfort or discomfort or neither, then we move on to our mood. What mood am I in right now? Am I comfortable but a little bored or am I comfortable but a little uh, tired or edgy or am I uncomfortable and sad versus uncomfortable and anxious or what is the mood and the, the states of comfort versus discomfort and then finally stepping back and noting how I'm framing this experience I'm not going to lead a mindfulness meditation today. I've led countless over the last 750 talks on the podcast. So look up mindfulness or look, just type in mindfulness meditation. 500,000 meditations will pop up and you'll be able to practice it. And if you do it daily, I guarantee you the studies on mindfulness and contentment are so significant. Uh, finally, though, uh, and one that doesn't get enough attention is a sense of oneness. <clears throat> we live in a Western capitalist country that has a fixation on uh, what's called individualism. Uh, the clinical term is idiocentrism. Um, uh, in essence, where we construct our identity, noting the attributes that differentiate or set us apart from other beings the distinguishing attributes like you know i am a buddhist pastor that's who i am because you're not <laughs> that's that's what gives me an identity the things that set me apart it, it's partly constructed of unique accomplishments the skills that we that earn us money in the world or get us recognition and it's partly based on neurotic symptoms so uh, in the individualist culture i'm not just a buddhist pastor uh therapist i'm also a uh neurotic anxious at times uh individual who has worked on creating feelings of greater safety in his life. So uh, the individualist or idiocentric approach is really, really noting the pathologies and the accomplishments that uh, distinguish us from others, not all of the feelings, emotions, that create and the just the higher consciousness that's not based on being in this singular body that creates a sense of connection interpersonal interrelated uh, connection um the idiosyncratic self activates the ventral medial 
uh, default mode operation of the brain and is associated with negative social comparison, like, oh my God, this person that I went to college with is now rich and famous and I'm not. And this activates the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex and the amygdala. And if you know anything about those regions, they create emotional pain and repetitive rumination. So you don't want to do that. You don't want to sit around uh, fixating on what sets you apart or how you contrast with others. You want to focus on all the things that connect you with other beings. There was a study I read for this talk, the disadvantages of being an individualist in an individualistic culture. You can look that one up, find it on Google. The disadvantages of being an individualist in an individualist culture. And what did it say? I'm going to have to look this up somewhere. Uh, idiocentrism or individualism associated with smaller and less satisfying social support networks, less skill in managing emotions, uh, lower intentions to seek help, and higher levels of hopelessness and suicidal ideation. In other words, you don't want to focus on what makes you unique. You just don't want to do it. You want to develop uh, awarenesses that balance and focus on all the things that connect you with a transpersonal consciousness. Fortunately for us, there's not just a uh, top-down identity based on these ideas that we can recite to others based on what sets us apart. There's also a felt self manifested in the feelings that arise in every situation in life. And though that array of feelings that arise in every different situation creates over time a felt self that in no way is experienced as separate or unique if we don't add that overlay of, oh my God, I'm feeling anxious. Nobody else ever feels anxious. If you simply become aware of your felt sense of self as relating to an environment and as present in other people, we become uh, more capable of sustaining states of well-being. Uh, people who regularly attain states of perceiving everything in the world as being connected and interdependent have greater life satisfaction than those who don't. And that was a study of 75,000 people in Germany at the University of Mannheim. So that's a massive study that shows that the more you focus on what unites you with all of nature, all other beings, this consciousness that is not your own, um, this involves a greater integration of your right frontal and temporal lobes. So how do we do it? How do we experience these transcendent states of oneness? Well, chanting, dancing, listening with others to trance music, tantric rituals, look them up. There's a whole array of them in uh, Tibetan Buddhist practice, uh, yoga practices involving sun salutations, 
doing and making art with other people's in, a, in an art class. Now, I'm not going to lie, there are some traditions where consuming hallucinogenic substances, especially in South America, famous shamans and plant medicines, uh, involve also a greater sense of wonder. Also, studies show that awe, it, when we are in natural settings that are vast and expansive, people often experience a sense of of losing their sense of individual uniqueness when they first encounter the Grand Canyon or uh, the Grand Tetons or an ocean or what have you. Um, the amygdala, which regulates our emotional behaviors and is notorious for activating fear and survival, but it also activates during states of awe. But we can also indu induce states of oneness and awe through meditation. In fact, there's been lots of research by Davidson at the University of Michigan, I believe it was, um, uh, on uh, transcendent states and meditation. There's so many those studies in it that show its effectivity. So today what I'm going to do is lead you on uh, the Kula Sunyata meditation. And it's one of the very, very few meditations that the historical Buddha described in the Pali Canon, uh, far less meditations than you would suspect. It's a meditation where we gradually reduce all of the preoccupations and unique thoughts about ourselves and others uh, that's and especially we stop localizing ourselves as being in this very narrowly defined body, and we learn to practice allowing the mind to, through its imagination and through its capability of simply perceiving itself as bigger than the body. That's actually part of proprioception. I think it is that the mind actually perceives. Uh, when we let it, itself is being bigger than the body. So I'm going to lead the Kula Sunyata meditation. And the goal will be to, in ridding the mind of the individual conceptions of self, will open up to the, what the Buddha called the bliss of the jhana states. So thanks for listening. I hope that something in that talk is usually was uh, in some way beneficial. And now the request is to find a really comfortable seated position where you don't have to put any effort in. Uh, if you do put effort, just the most minimal effort to not fall asleep. If you lie down on the floor, you can put a hand, you know, over your body so that if you fall asleep, it'll hit you. If you feel at all self-conscious, feel free to take yourself off the screen or just high, click off, stop video so you don't have to worry how you appear when meditating. Um, and uh, when you're ready closing the eyes
and just allowing your attention as always to return to your body which is the portal to the present moment the gateway to returning to present time awareness is reconnect with your body it'll keep you away from your thoughts and all the ruminations that pull us away and allow the mind to wander so we're gonna at first just tether the mind for a little while to its sense of being in a body and try to find the sensations in your body that let you know when you're breathing in and when you're breathing out that's the most basic instruction of the buddhas asking oneself am i breathing in or breathing out that's your consideration hmm And try to find those sensations in a place where it's really comfortable to note whether you're breathing in or out. So if your nose feels congested, don't note it there. Bring your attention to your chest or your belly. If your chest feels constricted or tight, don't notice it there. Focus on any area in your body that moves in or creates one set of sensations when you inhale and another set of sensations when you exhale. And all we want to do is try to breathe in a way that feels really good. If possible, inclining the exhalations to be slightly longer than they normally are, at least as long as the inhalation. So at the beginning, it's sometimes helpful to count the length of an inhalation. You count to four as you inhale, see if you can count to four as you exhale. And then see if you can also relax in that pause between the end of the exhalation and the inducement of the following inhalation. <laughs> And once you have a relaxed exhalation, start counting one on the in-breath, two on the out, three on the next inhalation, four on the succeeding exhalation, 
five on the next in-breath, and then start counting down four as you exhale, three as you inhale, and so forth. So we're counting from one to five and back down with the odd numbers always on the in-breaths. The goal is to be able to do that for a while without a thought pulling us away from where we are in the count. But if you do get distracted, just return. The most beneficial part of any meditation is simply that moment when you realize you've drifted away and you ingrain a new neural circuit allowing you to return back to the present Every time you do that, you're allowing your brain to experience what it's like to awaken from a daydream back into the present where you have agency and resilience and where you can affect the outcomes of your life.
So at this point, I'm going to lead us on the Kula Sunyata meditation, which is aimed towards attaining a non-dual state of awareness that liberates us from the sense of being a unique, isolated individual. So first bring into your mind a recollection or an image of all the people whatever town or city, village around us, both near and distant, all of the human landscape, the world of people, and focus for a moment your attention on all the characteristics that are common, that we've throughout us all, we all want to feel safe, important to others. We all have the same or similar emotional palettes ranging from experiences of sadness and loneliness to surprise and shock all the way to the positive experiences of joy, ease, and comfort. That nothing we've ever experienced on a core emotional level has ever been unique or in any way sets us apart. And just relaxing into that fundamental connectivity that all of us face the same challenges from birth, aging, sickness, being separated from people we love, at times struggling with people we don't, particularly like all of those experiences as well as all the positive. We all know what it is to be connected at times with people we admire. We all know the times and feelings of being in good health when it's happened and times where we felt well-connected, times where we've felt the pride of developing new skills. But knowing that all of these varied experiences and states are in no way unique, And then letting go of this reflection on our oneness with others 
And just bring a reflection on our connection with nature outside of humans, that just like all of nature itself, we are alive, breathing, growing, aging. It's just like all animals, we can experience everything from fear to pleasure and ease and safety and lack of safety. We arise and we pass. All things, all that you know, the fundamental principles are of our life is in common with that of all of nature. Just feel that connection. connection with animals and the nature that surrounds us. And then For a moment, letting go of the recollection of animals and nature and focus on our connection with the earth itself, the terrain, the rugged mountains, the barren deserts, the oceans. Buddha notes the riverlands, stumps and thorns and all the different forms that the earth can take and know that our lives are completely interdependent with the earth. We arise out of it, from it, of it. Nothing separates us from the earth. We are an expression of the earth. We arrive from it and return to it.
And then focusing attention away from the earth to the infinite space and vast emptiness that surrounds the earth and us in all directions, limitless. And note that we are just a part of that limitless space. Even our bodies are mostly comprised of space on a cellular, molecular level. May all forms of which we are one arose originally from vast emptiness, spaciousness, limitlessness, and that we are connected to it. And letting go of even that sense of being so much in space as the connection with what the Buddha called infinite consciousness, the fact that awareness can spread beyond the body, can encompass all of experience, and just allowing your state of awareness to roam beyond any limited topic or theme. Just knowing that everything can be held in your awareness. Nothing is outside of it. And just feel a part of this limitless awareness that all other beings as well enter into.
So at this point, I'm going to end the contemplation.